When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I'm your host, Grace Fowler, and today we are talking about the television show Arrested Development. Now, Arrested Development is an unusual layout of a show, as the first three seasons were filmed like in order from 2006 to 2009. Then there was a fourth season that was the first uh, TV show to be on a streaming service, so it was picked up by Netflix in 2016, I believe, and that was the and it was released on a streaming service, and then it didn't get a fifth season until 2008. And 19 or 18 or 19. Um, so it took a while for the show to complete and the series is not necessarily filmed in the way that traditional TV series are filmed where the same actors and characters are going through the show at the same time. Um, so it is uh, a little bit of an odd show and it was perpetually being canceled or being threatened with being canceled. So it's kind of a show that lives on the edge, which I think is very interesting. Um, but I wanted to talk about the show because I think it is a really good example of actually some concepts in psychodynamic or Freudian uh, based theories of psychology and of psychotherapy. And there are some really interesting ways that they deal with repression and double entendres that are funny and and really interesting jokes in the show, but are also, I think, kind of good examples of ideas like repression or the subconscious or unconscious coming out uh, in a conscious way that's unintended by by the person. So that's why I want to talk about the show. And honestly, all the way from the title down to individual jokes within the episodes are double entendres. So the, the title is Arrested Development which is a term with actually an interesting history that originally it was a medical term, which meant like actual physical stoppage of uh, physical development. So arrested development, like the person's body wasn't physically developing past a certain point. It had been arrested or slowed down. Um, And then uh, closer to the, the 80s, it began to be used as a way to describe like mental impairment or an intellectual impairment to say that like someone's mind was arrested in development but that is no longer a term that is used to describe like mental status or intellectual level of functioning you won't find that as like a diagnosis um for anything (laughs) anymore Uh, but it it seemed like it was used as a diagnosis back in the day Um, but arrested development is also a term in ceramics (laughs) and this is all from wikipedia Uh, a term for developing as a sphere um, and the the point in which a sphere kind of plateaus so you can't like make the, the sphere any bigger so it's arrested in its development past a certain shape or certain size so Overall, right, arrested means slowed or stopped, and development is is referring to, like, growth or moving forward. And so the show is about a family that, within the family structure, is arrested in their development. They haven't moved past the patterns of their childhood or the the patterns of um, the way the family originated, as well as their business is a real estate business that is constantly being... uh, disrupted so there's literal arrested development of their development plans like as as real estate developers so from the beginning from the jump we're talking about a double entendre now if you've never seen the show it's a pretty simple setup we follow the the bluth family those are those are our main characters we follow the adult children and the parents of this family who own a family business which is real estate um and the the various relationships they have with each other 
and this sort of inevitable downward spiral <laughs> this family is stuck in. Like they are not, uh, they're not great people. They're not func- They don't function well as a family. Um, and so the show inevitably is tracking the progress of their failure. Um, which again is an interesting parallel of how difficult it was to keep the show on the air and the kind of supposed failure of the show to, to keep itself going. So a lot of the stuff in the show is, like I said, a double entendre or something that we might call like a parallel process where it's meaning it's doing the same type of process in different settings. Um, so the, that's the main premise is that we're, we're, we're essentially just following this, this family around. Now it is a comedy show, so it does rely a lot on reoccurring jokes and a lot of the plot points you will see coming up over and over again, usually in service of, of a joke. Um, but I'm going to do just kind of a quick rundown of the characters and then talk about what they represent psychologically and then some of the more like Freudian analysis that I think is an interesting thing to keep in mind when watching the show. Now, I'm not going to do um, a super intensive like plot breakdown like I have done for other shows because Quite frankly, I think the plot of Arrested Development isn't necessarily the most important part of it. Um, it is the, the way the characters interact with each other. Um, it is the the jokes that <laughs> are honestly the funniest part and the best part. Um, and so the plot is really... It's, it's not a bad plot, but it's just kind of secondary to kind of the other things going on with the show. And I would rec- highly recommend, if you've never seen it, of going to watch it. Especially the first few seasons, because those are... I think the most well done because they had the most structure and the most resources at the time and they weren't um, as in flux about if they were able to stay a show. So uh, uh, that's my recommendation. But if you have seen the show, then I think this is going to be a really great episode for you. Um, and feel free to please reach out on our social media pages or at the, the Gmail, psychmindedpod at gmail.com. And let me know what you think about how some of these themes play out over the show if you're more familiar with it. So without further ado, let's talk about the Bluths. So the first character that we deal with the most is Michael Bluth. Um, He's the second oldest son in the Bluth family, and he eventually takes over the Bluth company when his father is ultimately arrested. So, and that's a a plot point that will come up over and over again, is the, the father of the family is frequently being arrested or on house arrest or on the run from the law um, due due in large part to his shady business dealings. So when Michael takes over the company, his whole goal is to run the company essentially in a non-criminal way. He wants to run the business like the way you would run a business and not a criminal enterprise. Uh, And he wants to make the business successful, which is something that the family has struggled with. And we see throughout the show that they really struggle with keeping a business successful, mostly because of the way they treat the business as like their own personal family fund (laughs) and they use the business money to fund their their rather lavish lifestyles and that's something that I should say before we get too far is that the family is really wealthy and that often becomes a joke or a a point of a punchline in the show is that they're so wealthy that they're kind of out of touch with reality or out of touch with the way that like most people live. Um, and if you've ever seen the meme, that's like uh, an older lady and, and she's saying, how much could a banana cost $10? That's from this show. Um, and it just goes to, to illustrate how out of touch these people are because of how much money they have. Uh, and that when their money is taken away, it is, as it is taken away over several points of the show, they really don't know how to function without the, the wealth that they're used to. So in the context of that, Michael is taking, takes over the business after his father's arrested. Um, Michael has an, a son, his only child, who um, his wife died when his son was very young. So Michael has been raising the son um, for all of his life and has been a, a, a widower for most of his son's life. Um, however, because of this, we see that Michael often limits his own life often to his own detriment for the sake of his son. So we see in the show that he refuses to go on dates or to, to meet new women because he's afraid of what it will do to his son. He often makes decisions about the company or how he spends his time based on how he thinks it'll impact his son, even though from the beginning, the first season of the show, his son is already a teenager. So it's, we're getting to a point where um, Michael and his son should be having a different type of relationship, um, that they should be moving into a more like adult son father 
relationship rather than like a father and a child. Um, and that's another form of arrested development, right? The, the, the title of the show is that Michael is very arrested or like stuck in the way in which he relates to his son and can't quite get himself to relate to his son, George Michael, in a way that you would relate to an adult, especially an adult child. And that, that plays out for many episodes <laughs> and throughout all the seasons of Michael like not understanding where his son is at or what his son needs because he's still seeing him as a child. Um, and at the same time, Michael is limiting his own life and using his son as an excuse so that Michael doesn't have to really examine the fact that he's not putting time into his own life. So that that's kind of Michael. Michael is also the straight man for most of the jokes, so he's the one who like doesn't react or he's uh he's not the silly one he's kind of the more more like rational and responsible person in the show particularly in the context of like the Bluth family so he's even though he's not the oldest son and he wouldn't be taking on like the I guess you could say like next in line role he is the the most responsible one so that's Michael Bluth our kind of our main character then we have Lindsay Bluth um she is the twin sister of Michael although we do Spoiler alert, <laughs> find out that at the end of the show that M- Lindsay was adopted and she's actually three years older than Michael and was their grandmother's child. So she's technically the half sister of Michael's mother. I know, confusing. But all you really need to know is that Lindsay and Michael are not actually um, twins and they are not directly related in the same way that they thought. Um, she is also the only girl or female, uh, woman child of the Bluth family. And she is shown to be like a quote unquote liberal activist, uh, but she can never quite stick with her ideals, kind of preferring to live a life of privilege afforded by wealth. And an example of this is that there's an episode where we see her want to take, uh, take part in this protest to keep a tree from being cut down. And there is a man who chained himself to the tree so that they couldn't cut down the tree. So she goes to join him. And at the beginning, you know, she's all fired up and she's like, this is what, this is what we're going to do. Like, I'm going (laughs) to, going to be chained to this tree for however long it takes. And then she ends up leaving because she gets hungry. Um, And when she leaves, the tree is able to be cut down because she told this man, like, she would take over his shift, basically, like his time on the tree. And then she leaves because she's not comfortable. And because of that, the tree is cut down and the cause is lost. So that's just kind of one example of how Lindsay's activism plays out. And over and over, we see her every time she makes a decision where she kind of abandons her causes or abandons her values. It's because she would prefer to live like a life of luxury, like whatever the the wealth of the Bluth family is going to afford her, she would rather go that way than than the hard kind of reality of living out some of the values she she says she has um and eventually Lindsay's character takes quite the arc (laughs) through the show and in the last season she ends up being essentially uh, a parody of Donald Trump and being this like conservative political figure who is running on a platform of building a wall between California and Mexico so it's just it's that's kind of the the trajectory they give her character. Now, she is married to a man named Tobias, and she has one child named Maybe, and both Tobias and Maybe, Lindsay seems to be uninterested in. Uh, she seems to actively hate her husband, and she continuously forgets about her daughter. Um, but we can talk about that more when I talk about those characters. But that's, so that's Lindsay, the only, the only daughter in the Bluth family. Next, we have Job Bluth, and his name stands for... George Oscar Bluth. Um, He is the first or the oldest child in the family. Um, So he's named after his dad and his dad's twin brother. So George and Oscar are the twins. So he's George Oscar Bluth, but the second, but they call him Job for short. Um, And that's another thing that becomes like a point of, of comedy in the show is that people are always mispronouncing his name because it's spelled G-O-B. So it seems like it should be pronounced Gob, <laughs> but it's Job. And so that's, um, that's an, I don't know. I think that's, a, it's funny to me that people just like can't get this man's name right. Um, but Job is a magician. He is a perpetual womanizer. And most importantly, he was always seeking the approval of his father. 
most often pitting himself against Michael, the, the second oldest son, to get that approval. Now, Job's job as a magician <laughs> is a, another aspect of his life that is only possible because his family is wealthy, because he's, one, not a very successful magician, and two, throughout the show, he eventually is kicked out of being a magician. <laughs> So he doesn't even get to do magician gigs anymore. So Job has has a bit of a tough time. He's he's kind of like a perpetual child in that he can't participate in the workplace in the way that like his his younger brother can. He is he he's very difficult interpersonally. People people don't get along with him. And he is always seen to be like pursuing a different woman and can't really stay in a long-term relationship. Um, even though one of the, the plot points of one of the later episodes is that he, on a whim, gets married to a woman he meets when he, on a night out and doesn't want to admit to anyone that he had did not consummate the marriage, that they did not have sex with each other. Um, but he doesn't want to admit that because that might hurt his reputation as a womanizer. So he ends up remaining legally married to this woman for way too long, uh, even though she wanted an annulment because he just like can't bring himself to admit that he didn't have sex with her. <laughs> so that's like, that's kind of Job's deal. He's very obstinate in that, in that manner too, right? Of like, he doesn't want to admit when maybe he's done wrong or doesn't want to admit when something didn't go the way he expected it. And so he really kind of locks in to his point of view and where he thinks things are going. Um, and he's he seemed to be always, always, always so desperate for his father to approve of him. Um, and of course, his father doesn't approve of him being like a magician. And it's not so much of a like disapproval as it is like a disappointment and dismissiveness his dad is very dismissive of the magic <laughs> um and in fact m most people in job's family are like very irritated by his magic and toward the end of the show it, it it becomes more and more clear as the show goes on that his his family is very tired of the magic tricks um but so job can never quite get the approval of his father and even when he is put in charge of the company even if it's just in name only, he makes so many mistakes and kind of runs the family business into the ground, which ultimately leads to more disapproval from his father. So it's kind of like a, a cycle that, that Job is really stuck in. And because Michael is always shown to be the more responsible one and is being brought in to clean up people's messes, Job and Michael tend to be in competition a lot more, especially for approval from their father. So that is Job. And then also over the show, Job really wrestles with his sexuality. Um, and the last season of the show, or the last two seasons, um, he's shown to be in love with another male magician. And it, it's interesting because it's, it's played as like... Um, him kind of wrestling with his sexuality is like, is he gay or bi or attracted to men in any way? But ultimately... Both men are attracted to each other because they are narcissists and they are reminded of themselves when they are in this relationship with each other. And there's there's obviously a lot more to that in the show and that, that's something you can check out on your own. But um, yeah, Job, ultimately I think that the, the outcome of Job's wrestling with his sexuality is that he's only really sexually interested in himself. <laughs> that he is like the best catch he's ever going to get. So that's kind of where he ends up. Um, so that's the main, oh, and then the last child of the Bluth family is Buster Bluth. He's the youngest, um, and he is actually not George Sr.'s biological child. He is the biological child of his uncle, Oscar, who is his father's twin brother. So his mother had been having an affair with the twin brother, which is quite fascinating given that they are identical twins they look exactly the same and they're played by the same actor they look exactly the same and she is having an affair with him so that you know read into that what you want um buster is the most sensitive and the most sheltered of the children um and he still lives with his mother and father um well into adulthood um he's seen as being a perpetual academic and he's always enrolled in some sort of like program or certificate or degree, um, even for things that are like really obscure, like cartography. Um, and they, there's like a joke made that like all the maps are already been made. Why do you need to learn this skill? Um, and he's seen to kind of always be, be cycling through these um, 
programs because he doesn't quite know what he wants to do and doesn't quite have an idea of who he is. Um, and ultimately, Buster joins the army in, in an attempt to find himself or find his purpose, um, but he enrolls in the army during the Iraq War. And that's something that's going to come up over and over again, is that, especially in the earlier seasons when the Iraq War was... Uh, in 2006, by then, the Iraq War had gotten to a point where public support for it had started to die out. Politicians had to admit that there were not... WMD in Iraq and that this war was kind of pointless. Um, and so it's interesting that Buster joins the army at this point when it's like the patriotism, the fervor for joining the military for this war was starting to die down to be much different than it had been in like 2001, 2002. Um, but anyway, so that that's Buster and he is... Um, I think one of the most interesting like Freudian dynamics of Buster and his mother is that there is a competition they both participate in called Mother Boy, <laughs> um, where the mothers and the boy children dress up in like matching outfits, but it's usually of like famous couples or like famous couples from movies. And so it's their couples costumes, but the mothers and their the sons dress up in these costumes and then compete and Buster competes in Mother Boy with his mother long past what is probably the age limit, because it's meant for children. He's competing with in this competition as like as an adult. And so this is kind of like, I mean, just Freudian, 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 right? Like, he can't be separated from his mother. He's like, just so enmeshed with her and and like uh, to a point where it's it's shown that Buster may be like romantically interested in his mother to the point that he ends up dating the woman who lives across the hall from them who is his mother's age and is and has the same name as his mother. I'm going to talk about that later but that's like pretty classic Freud. <laughs> um, and, and so that's Buster's position as like the youngest child. So uh, the parents we have George Bluth Sr. and Lucille Bluth. Um, they're They've been married for many years, and they've been in business together for many years. They both take this position of, like, kind of pitting the children against each other. Um, Lucille and George will kind of engage in, like, this splitting where they have, they'll tell one child a piece of information and, and tell another child a different piece of information to kind of see if they will fight about it or if they will, you know, turn against each other. And so the the parents are seen to kind of be manipulating the family and using their position basically as parents to kind of control their children even when their children are grown up and and moved out of their home and also because the parents hold most of the money they are able to kind of manipulate their children with withholding money or promising to pay them out more Um, and that's another big tool for how they manipulate the family. Now, both are also seen to have affairs. They're not very faithful to each other. And like I mentioned before, George Bluth is in prison or on house arrest or on the run for most of the show. So he's also seen to be like an absent husband um, who's largely uninterested in his wife until someone else is interested in her. And then he becomes very possessive. And then Lucille is shown to be uh, to have quite the issue with alcohol, she's like never sober and is, uh, gets increasingly more mean. She's already pretty mean sober, but gets increasingly more mean as she drinks more and more. So that's that's the Bluth family at large, or what we would call the family of origin. And then Michael and Lindsay have their own nuclear families that, that play a role in the show as well. So like I mentioned before, Michael has his son, who's, his name is George Michael. He's named after his grandpa and his father. Um, he often works in the family banana stand, which is like just a little business that the family owns where they sell frozen bananas dipped into chocolate. Um, and he, he is seen to be working there. He's like a very, very awkward boy. He's is very shy. He doesn't really do well in like large crowds or around other people. Um, and he is shown to be in love with his cousin, maybe who is Lindsay's child. Um, he does end up actually dating another girl because he's, you know, can't date his cousin. Um, and who is a very bland, very religious woman who 
no one in the family likes. Um, and George Michael kind of continues to stay with her, even though everyone is like, you might not want to be with this girl. Um, and again, he's super close with his father, although um, one of the plot lines that kind of follows George Michael is that he, toward the end of this the series in seasons four and five, is trying to get separation from his father. He's trying to like you know kind of figure out who he is, and that's something that he wrestles with a lot. Is like who is who is George Michael outside of the Bluth family? Like who does he want to be? What does he want to do with his life? What are the the things that he values? He really struggles with that. Um, and as he like is going through this and also setting out into these relationships with people who are you know not his cousin because he's trying to again not date his cousin. Um, he ends up dating a woman that his father is also dating, and he, George Michael doesn't know his dad is dating this woman, but Michael knows that his son is dating this woman, and he keeps it from him, and that ultimately kind of implodes their relationship, and they end the series like kind of being on the outs. Um, so that that's, that's George Michael. And then from Lindsay's nuclear family, we have her husband... Tobias Funke, who is a therapist, um, he's a he's actually a like more classical psychoanalyst. So he does more like what we would consider like traditional Freudian psychotherapy. Um, but he also it it's like shown in the show that he had like a pretty <laughs> prestigious career before the show began. Like he was the chief of psychiatry and like went to all these Ivy League schools and did like all these fancy things. And now he's, uh, now that they live in California, he is an out of work aspiring actor. So he like gives up mental health. He gives up therapy and he wants to become an actor. Um, and Tobias is actually one of the biggest sources of this idea of like repression um, and Freudian slips. So it's pretty much heavily insinuated throughout the show that Tobias is probably mostly sexually interested in men and romantically interested in men and not (laughs) at all in his wife. Um, And there are countless, countless jokes where Tobias is shown to like make a statement that is pretty much a Freudian slip or a pretty sexually explicit comment about like other men. So for example, one of the episodes we see Tobias trying to audition for a leading role in a, a show that he, he's auditioning for because he's trying to launch his acting career. And the line he says as he's telling them that he's getting ready to become a leading man is, oh, I can just taste those meaty leading man parts in my mouth. And he means the lines in his like saying the lines in his mouth, but it sounds like he's saying something else <laughs> that's a little more um, sexually explicit. There are just countless examples of Tobias doing this, and it gets to a point where he does this so often and makes these innuendos or double entendres so often that everyone in the Bluth family is pretty much like, he has to be gay. Like, there's no other way why he's doing this, um, and this has to be something that he's repressed, and it's just like, coming out of him. So that's where Tobias really serves to illustrate this idea of repression of if you pack down a part of your identity so far or a part of your subconscious and you you just like can't acknowledge it, it will find its way out essentially and it will leak out into the rest of your life. And then last but not least, we have Maybe, who is the daughter of Tobias and Lindsay. She is about the same age as George Michael and is also shown to be attracted to him. So they're kind of, you know, cousins who are dancing around dating each other. Um, Maybe acts out in increasingly more bizarre ways to get attention from her parents as they are too distracted with their relationship and careers to pay attention to her. So maybe, like, she just, she does so much. And by the end of the show, um, because many years have passed, she basically stays in high school for an extra five years to try to see if her parents will notice that she's never actually graduated high school and that she keeps just failing out of her classes over and over again. And they never notice and don't seem to know what she does with her day. Um, And then she also has this way of kind of stumbling into jobs or situations where she, like, improvs her way into gaining power or or gaining what she wants. Um, And there's a whole plot where as a high school student before her like staying on to to 
get her parents' attention. As a high school student, she ends up, like, walking onto a Hollywood studio lot and, like, makes her way into basically becoming a movie executive and, like, approving scripts and producing shows and movies and all these things. And, like, nobody knows that she's 16. She's just, like, doing this adult job and living this adult life but then at the same time like going to high school and of course her parents never notice like nobody except for George Michael even seems to know or care what's happening to maybe and so as the show goes on she has to do more and more bizarre things and ultimately ends up in a plot line where she dresses up as an like as an old lady so that she can live in a house for free in a retirement community and has a fake relationship with an old man and like it totally integrates into this retirement community and it's just like this is how she lives like she doesn't she doesn't know how to take care of herself so this is what she has to do um and it's you know largely connected to to her parents like inattention to her um and and so maybe is an interesting character because she is like very bright like there's parts of her character that is seems very intelligent she has some very interesting skills but because of the like kind of emotional neglect from her parents, like her her physical needs seem to have always been met by her parents, but the emotional neglect she experienced has really taken a toll and has made it impossible for maybe to have functioning interpersonal relationships with people and or to trust people or to rely on them. So she ends up in these like really wild situations where she's just kind of hoping <laughs> everything works out. Um, but not knowing how to like make a plan or get out of, of a sticky situation. So that is the Bluth family and all satellite members. Of course, as always, there are like a ton more characters and there are characters that reoccur and pop back up when you thought they were gone um, and, you know, just moving in another show. But these are the, our main characters. And I think these are the characters who most represent these like psychological concepts or these like Freudian concepts and so I think they are the the most important area of focus. With that being said let's talk about what this show kind of represents and what's going on in the subtext or under the surface of the show. So one thing that I think is really important to understand is the cultural and political climate that the show took place in Um, and there is an author uh, Leda who writes um, I believe for the Financial Times um, and has written like quite a few articles about Uh, arrested development and how it fits into these like very unique economic and political times so I highly recommend reading their work if you if you want to see more about it and I've linked to the article that I used for this section um, and the sources page but um, so this author argues that like the show actually straddles several distinct eras of political and cultural climate in the U.S. due to like I mentioned before being canceled and revived and there being like multiple years between certain seasons. So the first half of the show actually takes place before the housing crisis of like 2008 was when the the, the market crash began. Now the show, although it was released in like 2008 2009, it had been written beforehand, so the show hadn't quite yet touched on the full ramifications of the housing crisis. So the first few seasons exist in the world before the housing crisis and the great the ensuing great recession in the US but they also exist at a time in which there was this realization that the Iraq war was you know not going so well and maybe was a pointless war like i've said before um and and it's so we see uh quite a few plot lines about George Sr., George Blue Sr., selling houses to Saddam Hussein in Iraq, and that part of his kind of criminal activity had been sending lots of money over to Iraq to fund Saddam Hussein's, like, government, essentially, and that he was continuing to work with Saddam Hussein even during the events leading up to the Iraq War, which were at the time seemed to be like Saddam Hussein being behind uh, Twin Towers falling and the the terrorist event of 9-11. And although we know now that that was not who was behind the uh, attacks on the Twin Towers, Saddam Hussein was like a focus of a lot of this like fear mongering and war mongering that was going on at the time. And so the Bluths are seen to be like making business deals with him at a time when it would have been like a huge no-no um, and like the most like anti-American or un-American thing that that one could do. Now, 
Leda in their article argues that the show kind of makes a cartoon figure out of Saddam Hussein and kind of makes him seem like a little goofy and less of a, a scary figure than he should be portrayed as. But I think that the way they use Saddam Hussein in Arrested Development is to kind of point out how silly it was that we bought into the these claims that the, and there was no evidence for them. Specifically, the claims about there being weapons of mass destruction in Iraq that Saddam Hussein had and was preparing to use against the U.S. There's absolutely no evidence of that. Like, all of it was manufactured. Um, And the flip, the kind of inverse in Arrested Development, is that there is, like, hundreds of pages of evidence of George Bluth, like, doing this thing. But they still, he still keeps, like, kind of evading... um, capture keep evading responsibility and he's like so desperate to not be caught and that's kind of the flip of like this the reality was is we had no evidence that this thing was happening but we drummed up all these consequences for Saddam Hussein and like ultimately took his life right like and overthrew him um so that is like the very unique political and cultural climate that the first half of the seasons are taking place in and so there's a lot of references to the Iraq war and to George W. Bush and even political figures of the time like Michael Moore there's a lot of those references in the show and it honestly a lot of shows especially a lot of comedy more like liberal leaning shows at the time that is a lot of their jokes like if you ever watched 30 Rock which I will do an episode on one day I'm sure of it um there are a lot of jokes about like George W. Bush and the Iraq war and it's kind of this like positioning of these more liberal leaning comedy shows of like poking fun or, and not just put, even poking fun, but just like pointing out kind of the hypocrisy of the government. And it, I think it really signals the coming disillusionment that Americans have had with their government and kind of this lack of faith um, in the government to be transparent and to provide like important information. Um, and in the we've talked about this before on the show in the conspiratorial thinking episode, right? That the lack of transparency from authority sources is how conspiracy theories grow. And so this kind of tone of disillusionment or pointing out that authority figures or the government are lying to you or hiding things from you, um, I think we see a direct line to that disillusionment to where we kind of are at today. Um, And these shows, like specifically Arrested Development in this specific time, is kind of pointing these things out. So those are the first few seasons that are taking place before the housing crisis and in the midst of this like kind of cultural conversation about the Iraq war that's that's shifting away from this like support the truths, patriotism, we got to go get the bad guys and moving more into a like, hmm, seems like the government lied to us kind of point of view. Um, but the second half, the fourth and fifth seasons take place after the housing crisis and focuses a lot more on the consequences of that in America and like for people living here. So there's less focus on Iraq and a more focus on America and then on Mexico. So the shift turns toward Mexico, building a wall between Mexico and starts to reflect the reality of more like 2016, um, 2018 political conversations, including Donald Trump building a wall. So the the focus shifts more toward um, th- those themes. And in fact, the show, especially the fourth season, really deals with the housing crisis. And in part, it has to because the Bluths run a real estate company and it would have like 100% been affected by the housing crisis. So it just needed to be addressed. Um, but they also use it as an opportunity to kind of, again, highlight the way that like regular people or maybe maybe not regular people because the blues aren't regular but like how unaware people could could be impacted by these things so one of the i think most stark examples of this is that Lindsay and tobias are shown in the fourth season to buy like this giant mansion that they 100 percent cannot afford they are shown in a conversation with a realtor who's like, don't worry, we're going to get you into this mortgage, we're going to get you into this house, like, there's no consequences, these mortgages are like so cheap, blah, 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 and then immediately after they buy the house, the housing market crashes, and now they're stuck in a massive house that they can't afford with a mortgage that is going up and up as the the market uh, tries to adjust. So, and, and of course, not having, like, they don't have their own stable 
sources of income. And when they go in to meet with the realtor, they're pretty upfront about like, we have no money. We have, Tobias says like, we don't have an income, we have an incoming income problem, but the outgoing income, there's no problem there because they're spending all of their money, but they're still approved for a loan for this house. And that is exactly what was going on at that time in like 2009, 2010 is people were, or actually prior to the housing crisis, but we learned about why it impacted the economy in like 2009, 2010, was people who like did not have the means to afford a mortgage were being approved for these outlandish mortgages for these like huge houses. And then when inevitably they couldn't make payments because they, of their financial situation, um, they were foreclosed on, lost their houses, and then that led to the bubble popping. <laughs> um, and so the show is like highlighting that this is this is the process that was happening, but they're making it funny because it's Lindsay and Tobias and they're kind of dumb and they're not good with their money and they're silly characters and they're making jokes about it, but the show is like pointing out that this is kind of what was going on and there were these predatory realtors or bank people who were like, yeah, no, 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 like you can afford this, you can go for it. Um, and then that's a, a big piece that I think that's different in the second seasons because they were able to look back on the reality of the housing crisis. Um, and then additionally, especially in the last season, this idea of like politicians that want to build a wall between the U.S. and Mexico, that um, politicians will sell out whatever they believe in just to get votes. And that's really illustrated with um, Lindsay, who, like I mentioned before, was a liberal activist and then becomes this like conservative right-wing politician who's advocating for building a wall between U.S. and Mexico. But then also she's like exploiting Mexican-Americans and people from Mexico. She's exploiting them for their labor. She doesn't think very highly of them. She's like pretty racist. Like a lot of people in the show are, are pretty racist and engage in a lot of stereotyping of other people. Um, and, and she's like, she embodies all of that, even though she had been this like save the trees, like hippie liberal PETA activist and she's she's completely sold herself out to become this figure because she knows that that's how she will win because those ideas are the ones that get the most attention when she's at rallies so why wouldn't she you know keep up with this um so I think that the the fact that the second seasons take place after the housing crisis and also after the 2016 presidential presidential election had kicked off which you know, really changed, I think, a lot for a lot of us, the course of politics and really highlighted this kind of, I don't know, like cynicism of politicians of like, people will just say anything to get elected and people will say like truly horrible things to get elected. Um, and then the unfortunate part is that then the people, like the voters, the electorate will parrot that back um, and that it ramps up these like very ugly, very awful sentiments. Um, and so I think that the, the, the second seasons really um, lean into the, that, that cynicism and that like, I don't know, it's almost like a despair of like, this is, this is what it is, right? Of like, people are bad, people are nasty, and will say whatever it takes to get power or to get money, and will tear apart their families. And I know that this probably doesn't sound like a comedy from the way that I'm describing it. Um, but again, I think that that's because this is what the subtext is. And you're taking it in along with like jokes, every other line, you know, physical humor, like puns, like the, the set pieces, there's, there's humor in the set pieces, and the situations the characters find themselves in. So you're able to kind of take in these messages with the met like the sugar <laughs> to help the medicine go down the sugar being the comedy part and like i think one of the things one of the ways that the show uses like set pieces to illustrate their points is the the house that the blues live in so michael and his son george michael live in a model home that is in the neighborhood where his family is developing the homes for so they they live in the model home and of course throughout the show pretty much every other family member at some point lives in the model home with uh michael and george michael because 
they just like are very intrusive and keep showing up. Um, but throughout the series, the more and more that people live in the mobile home, the more and more that it falls apart. Like literally things are falling off of the walls. The fridge is like, it gets ripped out of the wall. People keep falling off the, the staircase, off the banister because it's not sturdy enough. Like the house is falling down around them. And it's funny, like it, 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 there are certain points where things fall off the wall and it's really well-timed. And of course it's all intentional, but it's really, really funny because of the comedic timing of it. But the message of it is like these real estate companies or these developers are building these homes that are garbage. And then they created this housing crisis off of these houses that we can't live in because they're garbage and they're falling apart. And they're doing everything they can to cut these corners and squeeze the most money out of their in so-called investment, while the people who actually live in the houses can't function because they're they're falling apart. You know, like that's kind of the 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 subtext of that. And then, like even deeper, the the symbolic representation of that is like the Bluths can't keep themselves together, right? Like they can't build a house that stays together. They can't keep their family together. They can't keep their company together. Like everything is falling apart. And all of that, I think all of those messages we are getting, but the explicit, the message that we are aware of is, LOL, it's so funny when the TV fell off the wall at that moment, right? But we're getting all of this implicit information at the same time, which is why I think the show is so great, is that it is so, so funny. But if you like pause and think about it, there's so much subtext, there's so much like implicit messaging there that you can really sit down and kind of pick apart the show. And so I think that is a excellent <laughs> segue into my like unconscious or Freudian analysis that um, I got a lot of my points from an article by Young, not Carl Young, <laughs> Tim Young, in a really interesting book called Arrested Development and Philosophy, They've Made a Huge Mistake which you can find on Google Books, um, but I've linked to the, I, I have the source on the sources page, um, but it's basically a book written by a bunch of philosophers where they sat down and watched through Arrested Development and then like picked apart kind of the philosophy of it. And this author of this chapter in particular focused on Freud and Freudian analysis. And it was a fantastic chapter. I highly recommend it. That is what I uh, pull a lot of my foundational points from. Um, and we're going to jump off from there. So one of the things that I thought was really interesting is that we can see how Michael kind of, a lot of characters represent re repression, but Michael represents repression in a, in a really unique way. So he, the repression, the concept of repression, especially from the perspective of Freud, is the act of keeping the unconscious away from the conscious or away from awareness. So this is kind of a, a process that the brain will do to keep painful or traumatic or upsetting memories or thoughts away from awareness, but they will slip out in other ways. So the example given in the book, which I thought was interesting, is that at one point in the show, when Michael is living in the model home, his father has escaped from jail and is living in the attic of their house. And Michael has all the evidence in the world that somebody, and specifically his father, is living in the attic. And there are even times where George Michael, who does know that his grandfather is in the attic, George Michael is trying to tell his father, like, Pop-Pop, Grandpa is in the attic. And Michael just cannot reconcile with this. Like, he just so firmly believes that his dad is in prison and that his dad wouldn't do a bad thing like run away from prison that he cannot understand it and thinks that George Michael is saying pop pop his name for his grandfather that he's saying it in reference to like having sex that he's calling sex pop pop in this case Michael is so unable to rationalize what it would mean if his dad had run away from prison um, that he's like keep and he's keeping it so repressed that even when it's in front of him being told to him there's evidence about it he just like cannot for the life of him acknowledge it. So Michael is, although all of the characters do some type of repression, um, particularly around like sexuality, Michael is kind of like the king of repression from top to bottom. <laughs> like he is repressing everything, not just his sexuality, which there are examples of that as well, but like even basic knowledge about like where his family is or what's going on. And M Michael 
we also see that there are some points where when that repression starts to slip and things start to come to his awareness, he like falls apart. He like cannot handle it and he has to immediately go back into a repression. And this is like a pretty classic Freudian take of the idea that there are people walking around in the world who there's so much like nastiness or bad thoughts or upsetting thoughts or sad thoughts they have like they can't handle it that they have like mm, shoved it down shoved it down and it is kept so far away from their conscious awareness that they don't even know that this is going on inside of them so someone who is repressing especially to the degree that michael does you couldn't come up to them and be like hey seems like you're having a tough time like should we talk about you know, like your breakup, or let's say they're repressing the knowledge of their breakup, which would be pretty extreme, right? This person like, hey, let's talk about your breakup. Seems like maybe you're having a tough time. And they would just look at you like absolutely shocked. Like, I haven't been broken up with. There's there's no breakup to deal with. Like, I'm not, I'm not sad, even though maybe throughout the day you've seen them, you've caught them with like a tear rolling down their eye or saying something like a Freudian slip, like something coming out like Tobias's languages. And again, this person, even though there's evidence in front of them and you would be able to present them with evidence of like, this is when you got broken up with and this is what was said to you and this is what happened and this is how long it's been, um, this person would like not be able to consciously acknowledge that the breakup happened because it's been repressed. And that is Michael's character to a T. Now, one way in which this comes out is Michael also gets some really fun Freudian slip jokes throughout the series. Um... And a lot of the jokes in the show do rely on this, but Michael Michael has some of his his own. And so one of the examples is there's a plot line where Job, his older brother, is dating a woman named Marta, who is like a very sweet, very kind woman. Um, I believe she has a son. Overall, she's just shown to be like like a very good person, like definitely somebody that the Blues should not be involved with. Like she she deserves better. And so she's dating Job, who. As per his like womanizing ways, is uninterested in her, uninterested in what she wants to do with her life, like very dismissive of of Marta and her interests. And so when Michael meets Marta, his brother's girlfriend, he's like instantly in love with her. He thinks she's like the perfect woman for him. They have so much in common. He is so interested in her and what she wants to do. And, you know, she does feel a, a pull to him, and that, that becomes a storyline. But at one point, they, Marta and Michael are having a conversation where she's asking him, like, you know, why aren't you in a relationship? It's been, you know, a while since your wife has passed away. Like, what what keeps you from um, dating anyone? And so she says to him, so you're saying there's no one that you're even interested in? And Michael says, there was somebody for a little while, but it was too much of a brother, a bother. <laughs> And the Freudian slip there is that he says brother instead of the word bother. And brother being, he's interested in Marta, and the issue is that she was with his brother. Like, she's dating his brother. There's too much brother, right? And he he lets that out even though he meant to say bother. And so that would be an example of, like, Michael is trying so hard to not admit even to himself that he's interested in this woman, and he's repressing his interest in her. He's repressing, like even his own desire or romantic desire because he has kept himself celibate and single for George Michael, even though George Michael doesn't care, <laughs> like wants his dad to be happy. Um, he, Michael has like so much is being repressed that it's like leaking out in these little comments, right? Like to, it would be too much of a brother. So that's, I think, a really good example of a Freudian slip. And again, the show really relies on a lot of these Freudian slips and is a way that it communicates to the audience, like, this is what the character is really thinking, even though the characters are like compulsive liars, right? Like pretty much everyone in the show lies all the time. (laughs) And so within the Freudian slips, we're able to see a little bit of the truth. So they're kind of telegraphing to you what's really going on um, in the show. Now, the other, I think like biggest Freudian um, concept we see in Arrested Development is the Oedipus Complex, and this is so apparent with Buster and Lucille. So the Oedipus Complex is based on the Greek myth of Oedipus, who in this myth, Oedipus was born, an oracle predicted that he would kill his father, and in a panic, his father um, attempted to kill the baby, 
Um, but his mother intervened, and instead of being killed, Oedipus was taken out into the forest and abandoned. And there are a couple of versions of the myth, but ultimately what happens is Oedipus is raised by someone else, essentially his adopted family, and as he comes into adulthood and goes on his hero's journey, he ends up coming back to the kingdom of his father and mother, kills his father in a battle, and marries his mother, unbeknownst to him that this was his mother and father because he grew up away from them, and they didn't know who he was either because he had grown up. They they assumed that he was dead because he was left out in the woods, um, so they, nobody knew each other, but he ends up killing his, his father and marrying his mother, and I believe having children with her, um, until he finds out, and I believe he blinds himself, so <laughs> doesn't end well for Oedipus, and the Oedipus complex, which is based on that myth is was Freud's idea that boy children, and this is, you know, a little old school, a little, a little gendered and a little heterocentric, um, but that boy children were jealous of their fathers for taking away their mother's attention and were like sexually or romantically wanting to control the attention of their mother. So they like psychologically wanted to kill their father to be with their mother and saw their fathers as like a uh an object of like jealousy like to feel jealousy or envy towards because the father got to be with sexually with the mother um and we've talked about the opposite of this which is the electric complex which is a girl child wanting to kill her mother to be near to her father and if you listen to the bioshock 2 episode which was a few episodes ago um, the main character in that game is in an electric complex kind of situation with his daughter where she wants to kill her mother and be like with him, even though he's like her adopted father. But anyway, you can go back to that episode and listen to it if you want to hear more about the electric complex on the girl side. Um, so back to Arrested Development, Buster is kind of this... Oedipus complex walking and living and breathing. He's very interested in his mother. He's like very focused on her, almost like compulsively and to a point that it's made fun of and to a point where he like tries to date someone with her same name and her same age. And he is not a big fan of his father. Um, and even when he finds out who his real father is, which is his, his uncle, um, he still has like difficulty getting close to his father because ultimately he wants to be close with his mother. Um, so that <laughs> that is Buster. And again, in the show, it's like, it's a joke. It's seen as something to be poked fun at and everyone seems to be aware that this is happening except for Buster. So Buster is like repressing his own Oedipal complex because he can't admit to himself that he wants to be intimate with his mother. Um, and Freud would have would say that the Electra and the Oedipal complex are subconscious processes, right? Like the child is not consciously aware of what they are doing. Now, like I said in the Bioshock 2 episode, the Oedipal complex, there's not a whole lot of evidence for it. We don't really use it in treatment much. Um, and I, I would say that if you are working with a therapist who tells you you want to kill your father to have sex with your mother, you might want to push back on that a little bit and ask questions about that because we don't really use it in treatment in the way that we we used to back in Freud's time um and again we don't have a whole lot of evidence for the edible complex like being a, a real phenomenon so it's just again it's kind of an interesting and um like trope to look at kind of an interesting thing that plays out in the show and again like this book is a philosophy book so they're looking more at kind of like the way that Freud was thinking about the world and less so about like treatment from a Freudian perspective. But I think the kind of key takeaway from the show is that repression will, doesn't matter how much you think you've got everything bottled up, it will leak out of you. <laughs> like, you can't keep repressed forever. It's It's got to come out some way. So it's better to find maybe a creative way or a healthy way in treatment with support to, to let those things out so that they don't leak out in sexual innuendos or sexual obsession with your parents um they can come out in like maybe art or in talk therapy or by taking medication so you don't feel so um depressed <laughs> you know whatever whatever it may be um but that about wraps it up for this episode um again i highly recommend the show it is super super funny um i think that the that breaking it down to these like 
unconscious and representative things makes the show seem really dark and <laughs> maybe boring. <laughs> um, I hope you weren't bored in this episode, but you know, it, 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 it's, there's a darkness there that again, goes down a lot easier in the context of comedy because it makes it more palatable. It's the spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down. Um, so like watching it for yourself, I think is, is the best way to kind of get that. But I wanted to kind of get some of this out there, kind of think about these things in a different way and really make sense of the show for myself and, and hopefully for those of you listening. Um, so as always, I want to say thank you for sticking with me to the end of the episode. Um, and I hope to see you in the next one. Goodbye. To see the sources and resources mentioned in the episode, visit psychologicallymindedpod.com or click the link in the show notes. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming episodes, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you and see you in the next episode.